Thank you. Turn with me to Matthew's account of the resurrection, which is found in Matthew chapter 28. Read in verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading the entire account of the resurrection Matthew gives to us in my message, however, dealing primarily with verses 8 through 10. Let us remember as we read this is the Word of God and what a great story it is. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. And it's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. And we thank you for being good to us and giving to us this historical account of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. What a marvelous experience it was. And what a marvelous experience it was for these women to find the tomb empty, the body missing, and to hear the good news that he was risen. Father, I pray your blessing upon us now as we turn our minds and hearts to this account of the resurrection. Would you speak to us through it, give us encouragement from it, and help us to see Jesus, perhaps as we've never seen him before. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, those who followed Jesus were sad, discouraged, and confused. Some of them, you know, had made tremendous sacrifices to follow Jesus. Left their homes, left their jobs, left their families. And they they certainly didn't understand everything Jesus had said and certainly didn't understand everything Jesus had had done. But they knew there was something very special about Jesus. His claims about being the Son of God, about being the King of the Jews, about being the long-promised Messiah had given the people great hope. Hope that Jesus would do what they really expected him to do. And that was overthrow Rome, or at least deliver them from their bondage to Rome, and reestablish their special relationship with God. 
But now all those hopes have been dashed. Jesus has been arrested, put through a mock trial, and been crucified. The cross, still standing there on the hill of Golgotha, was a silent reminder of their confusion and their despair. Today's Easter Sunday. There is no longer any despair. But you know, you can't understand the empty tomb without also understanding the cross. You, you can't understand the resurrection without grasping the significance of the crucifixion. That's why last Sunday I took such great pains to describe what happened to Jesus on the last week of his life. You know, over a, really a period of just a few days, Jesus had fallen out of favor with the people. He had encountered a lot of legal trouble, legal trouble with the Jewish religious authorities and with the Roman civil authorities. And it's just amazing, really, how quickly things turned against Jesus. And how after all these multitudes, the Bible describes them, huge crowds of people had followed Jesus from place to place, come out to, to hear him teach and to see him perform miracles. And even after on Palm Sunday, they had waved their palm branches before him, put their coats on the road in front of him, hailed him as the king of the Jews. For all of that, Jesus died basically alone. One of the saddest moments in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is found in Matthew 26. If you back up a couple of chapters to Matthew 26, there is the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, you know, earnestly with so earnestly that he perspired as it were great drops of blood and he prayed three times Father if possible let this cup pass from me and, and while he was praying his disciples were sleeping and, and as soon as Jesus got through praying here came the mob here came Judas and, and the mob of people with, with rods to come and to arrest him you see Jesus knew what he was about to experience and when they came to arrest him, look what happened in verse 56, the end of verse 56, where it says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. Jesus died alone. Only a few of his followers, it appears that it was the apostle John, and Jesus' mother, who stood there with him at the foot of the cross. Now, some of the other women who had followed Jesus were off at a distance, watching from afar. But the other disciples were nowhere to be found. They were in hiding. And so Jesus went through all this primarily alone. He was stripped, beaten, humiliated, and then put to death. And little did people know, however, that through his humiliation and his death on the cross, a death that on the outside looked a lot like the, the deaths of the two thieves who died beside him, 
That in this humiliation and death, Jesus was paying the price for the sins of his people. And by his death, the justice of God was satisfied for our sin. You know, when Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that moment he experienced what we confessed earlier, the the sheer agony of hell. The terror, the terror of being separated from God. And when on the cross, Jesus says, said, it is finished. It was. Everything needed to be done to accomplish your salvation was done then and there. And so Jesus died. Died a lonely death. And later in the day, after he was dead, a man named Joseph from a town of Arimathea, a wealthy man, came and asked for permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross. It was late in the day. The Sabbath was approaching. There wasn't much he could do. I'm sure he secured some help, carried Jesus' body to a new tomb that had been recently cut out of the rock wrapped Jesus' body in a linen sheet laid his body in that tomb and rolled a heavy stone across the door it's interesting the next day the chief priests and the Pharisees became nervous and they went to Pilate and look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 63 well, let's start at verse 62. Now, on the next day, that's the day after Jesus died, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. It isn't that interesting. And then they went on to tell Pilate in verse 64, Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse worse than the first. And so Pilate did that. He ordered that the the tomb be sealed, that a heavy guard be placed there to protect it so that nothing would happen. Then it was on the third day after the crucifixion that some of the women followers of Jesus came to tend to his body the Sabbath was now over there had not been time before the onset of the Sabbath on the day he died now they could take their time do what needed to be done to give Jesus body a proper anointing or preparation for burial now let's give credit where credit is due it was the women it was the women who were the ones hanging around the cross, the first ones to go to the grave to tend to Jesus' body. It was the women. The men were in hiding. What did we find in Matthew 26? The disciples of Jesus fled. And apparently on this third day, they are still somewhat in hiding. And so these women made their way to the tomb. Just as the sun began to rise, 
They knew Joseph had rolled this heavy stone in front of the grave because they fathered him. When Joseph took the body of Jesus down from the grave, they fathered him to see where they laid, he laid his body. And Matthew has an interesting way of putting it in Matthew 20, chapter 28, back to our text, into verse 1, where it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. In the context of the rest of Scripture, they were looking to see how they might get that stone out of the way because the other gospel accounts say that's what they wondered. As they were making their way to the, the tomb, they wondered, how in the world are we going to move this stone away from the door? How will we get to Jesus' body? Well, when they got to the grave, they realized that problem was already solved. The stone was already rolled away. In fact, when they, when they arrived, they realized some very strange things had happened. There had been an earthquake in the night. There had been an angel had descended from heaven. The, the angel had, had rolled the stone away from the opening to the grave. And the angel was still standing there. You see, the earthquake happened, we believe, when the body of Jesus was raised in victory and great power from the grave. The angel came down to move the stone away. Not so that Jesus' body could get out or Jesus could escape, but to show that Jesus' body was no longer there. And when the women arrived, the angel greeted them and gave them that wonderful news, he is not here he is risen. But notice exactly what the angel said in verse 6. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. You know, Jesus had told his disciples what would happen to him. We, we saw last week, Jesus told his disciples, going to Jerusalem, I'm going to endure many things at the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'll rise again. Jesus didn't just say it once, but he told them several times. But they just could not grasp it. Couldn't not get their mind around it because it was just so incredible to think that he would rise from the dead. It is incredible, isn't it? It is the greatest miracle that has ever taken place. And it has the greatest consequences of any event that has ever taken place. Now, I've given you a long introduction this morning. It doesn't mean there's going to be a long sermon. I just want you to think about something this morning as we reflect on what we've just talked about, the familiar story of the resurrection of Jesus. And that is, what is your response to it? How do you respond to the knowledge that Jesus is raised from the dead? How does it impact you? How does it change you? What difference does it make in your life? Now, to help you think about that this morning, I want us to look at three ways these women 
responded to the news of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think the way they responded is instructive for us. It, it helps us kind of realize how we should respond to the good news of the resurrection ourselves. Briefly, three responses. And the first is, we see in verse 8, they responded with fear and with joy. They left the tomb, the text says, quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. Now the first thing that the angel had told them back in verse 5 was, do not be afraid. You see, the, the resurrection was not to engender fear in these women, but rather it was to comfort, strengthen, and encourage them. And so this fear they experienced was not terror, but it's a sense of awe and wonder that this great event had taken place. And even in their fear, even in a sense of awe, they took great strength and encouragement from what they had seen. And that's what the resurrection is to do for us. Surely it's to give us a sense of awe and wonder. And, and even if you're like me and you, you celebrate a lot of Easter's over your life. We ought never allow it become something mundane or routine. There ought to be some sense of awe in all of us. As we think back to the wonder and the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And as we realize the mighty power of God in raising His Son from the dead, it ought to give us great comfort and strength and encouragement to know that that God is our God. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who walks with us every moment of every day, who even in fact lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a sense of awe, but it was accompanied by this great sense of great joy. Now, I'm sure these women didn't understand exactly what had taken place, and they hadn't yet put it all together, but they knew something special had happened. And the Bible says they were full of joy because of it. Joy. Do you get that? The response of the women to the fact that Jesus was alive was a response of great joy. And I would submit to you that one of the things that we need more of in our individual lives and one thing we need more of in the church's life is a real sense of joy. Joy in the fact that Jesus is alive. And yet the reality is, what do we find so often in the Christian community? What do we find so often in the life of the church? It's despondency and despair and woe is me, folks. We have reason for great joy. It's because Jesus lives. It gives us great joy to know that our Savior is risen. If anyone on earth has reason to be joyful, truly joyful, it's 
those who believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about a light frivolity. I'm not talking about a giddiness. I'm not talking about an artificial smile pasted on your face so you can make people think that you're so happy all the time. I'm talking about a deep sense of joy that brings you to church when your family members have passed away. A deep sense of joy that transforms you and makes you into something different, gives you something to live for, gives you a great delight in God's presence in your life. These women were filled with a sense of fear and great joy. That's their first response. But there's a second response. And the second response was one of worship. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now all this goes together. They were first filled with a sense of fear, awe, and joy. And so that when they saw Jesus, what did they do? They fell at his feet and they worshipped him. Worship. That's what we're here about this morning. That's what we hear about every Lord's Day. And corporate worship is an important time of in the life of a believer. I know preachers are supposed to say that. But worship is an important time in the life of a believer. These times when we gather together as God's people to worship Him. What is it that makes worship possible? What is it that gives us reason to worship? It's what happened in Matthew 28. It's, it's because of the resurrection. It's because Jesus lives. We, we don't come to worship just because we're supposed to come to worship. We, we don't come to worship just because our parents taught us to go to worship. We don't go to worship just because it's the cultural thing to do here in the South. To go to worship. If that's why you come to worship, stay home. Worship is about Jesus, about the living Christ coming to worship Him and knowing that He is here among us. Folks, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know. I know he's living, whatever men may say. And our worship is to be all about him. We talk about trying to have Christ-centered or gospel-centered worship. Worship that means something. Worship that reaches to your heart and to your life. Now, I know that we're not, we're not very seeker-friendly around here. We're not very emotional around here. We don't do things that try to arouse your emotions. But folks, there ought to be something emotional about your worship. Look at what these women did. They fell at Jesus' feet and they worshipped Him. It meant something to them. And worship really ought to, to mean something to us. It ought to be something that we find 
that fills a void in our lives. Worship is to be personal. You come individually or with your family to a corporate body of believers to worship. We worship together. But that worship is to be personal. Where you come to meet with God's people. With God himself. And then there's a third response. And that response is one of great hope. Notice what Jesus said to them in verse 10. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. This is a brief little encounter they had with Jesus. And basically, the one thing Jesus told them was, I want you to go. He didn't want them to tarry and linger with him. He said, you go. You go tell my disciples to go to Galilee. And then he gave them that great word of hope. There they shall see me. Hope. Hope that they would see the risen Christ again. And even though Jesus here is speaking about the disciples, I'm sure those women knew they were going to be included and they would see him too. And they did. The resurrection gives us great hope, sure hope, that someday, someday, probably for some of us, someday soon, we will see Jesus. In John 14, Jesus said, If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. Why? So that where I am, there you may be also. In Acts 1, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the angel said, Why do you stand there looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has just ascended into heaven, will in the same way come again. Peter tells us that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, there's a definite link. The Bible ties together the fact of the resurrection and our great hope in Christ. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I have the great hope of seeing him. I don't get to see my sons very often because of their schedules and my schedule. It's very difficult for us to get together. But I always have this great hope of seeing them. You parents with grown children, you understand that. And this great hope of seeing them. We're all going to be together end of next month at David's graduation. We'll have several days uh, together at that time. And I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that and what great hope I have for that to take place. But my hope, my hope in seeing Jesus ought to be far greater. The hope I have of seeing my sons ought to pale in comparison of my seeing Jesus face to face someday. 
It's Easter Sunday, folks. We celebrate the resurrection. Jesus lives. My question again is, what difference does it make? I hope this morning you find in your life the same difference it made in the lives of these women. You find in your life a sense of awe over this great event. A sense of joy over the fact that Jesus lives. I hope that you find in your life a response of worship. The living Christ beckoning you to come and to worship Him. And finding that to be personal and meaningful. And I hope that you have great hope. Hope that one day you'll see Jesus face to face. That you will enjoy His presence forever. That great hope that because He lives, you and I, and all those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, will live too. Live forever with our Savior. Happy Easter. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus. It is significant. It means so much. Help us take from it today what we find here, a real sense of awe and joy, a real sense of a desire to worship in a meaningful way, and a real sense of hope. And seeing Jesus one day. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we see you and be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.